Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Our guests today are Tara Vance and Kate Jones. Tara is the founder of Neuroclastic, an autistic-led nonprofit organization that publishes articles by autistic writers and professionals advocating for autistic representation and human rights. Kate is an artist and visual designer at Neuroclastic. In this conversation, we discuss being diagnosed later in life and growing up without proper support, anxiety and autistic burnout, the medical model versus the social model of disability, the consequences of masking, the double empathy problem, how to teach neurotypical children to interact with autistic peers, utilizing special interests, interdependence and collectivism, and advice for allies. We also touch on the controversial topic of applied behavior analysis, or ABA, which Tara and Kate strongly oppose. In previous episodes, you may have heard from autistic guests who have reported positive experiences from receiving ABA therapy, as well as autistic behavior analysts currently practicing ABA. As many self-advocates have repeatedly reminded us on this podcast, if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. As we intentionally share different and even opposing views in this space, we encourage you to step outside the realm of right and wrong and engage with the wide range of nuanced perspectives coming from the autistic community on hard topics like this. I invite you to listen to this episode from a place of openness and curiosity. If you hear something that triggers an immediate thought of, no, that's not true, I encourage you to pause and instead ask yourself, could this be true? I know how hard this can be, mainly because it has happened to me many times since we started this podcast. But how much can we really learn if we're not willing to lean into discomfort? What's possible lives in the realm of curiosity. If you have any questions or comments, please join us in our online global autism community, where very diverse opinions are continuously engaging in these types of conversations. In this episode, discover what's possible when communication breaks down both ways. To learn more about Tara, Kate, and Neuroclastic, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you Tara Vance and Kate Jones. Hello, Tara and Kate. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Could you please introduce yourselves and describe your roles at Neuroclastic? Sure, I'll start that. I'm Tara Vance. I am uh, the CEO of Neuroclastic. We are an autistic-led nonprofit, and we primarily are a publication 
And um, my role there is all of the roles. (laughs) Um, No, I do a lot of everything. I recruit autistic people from all over the world to contribute. And I do a lot of editing and a lot of liaising with different organizations and groups. And we do a lot of social justice work. And so that's, that's me. I'm Kate Jones and I, for neuroclastic, the thing I do most of all is I draw. So I illustrate articles and create graphics for posts for neuroclastic's website and um, social media. So that's mainly the thing I do. Got it. And you're both on different ends of the world, right? Kate, you are in England, is that right? Yeah, I'm in Manchester in the UK. And Tara, where are you from? I'm in Virginia in the United States, so East Coast. Okay. And how did you two meet? How did you guys start working together? (laughs) We met the same way all autistic people meet, which is online. Um, That is the world in autistic. And um, so when you are an autistic advocate or activist, you hang out in autistic spaces all the time. And there are groups for autistic professionals and groups for autistic everything. (laughs) They're really highly specific because that's what, that's how we are. And so um, I think that we met through a mutual close friend who is the autistic OT, Sarah Silvaggi Hernandez. She's very well known in autistic advocacy. And so. Mm -hmm. So how did the idea for neuroclastic come about? When I was new to being autistic, I accidentally landed a gig just by complaining in the comment section at Psych Central that ended up (laughs) leading me to being one of their core contributors, their bloggers. And so I was getting all this traffic, massive traffic, and I was new. I, I didn't deserve to be the token autistic person in this, you know, the biggest behavioral health psychology website in the world. Uh, So I asked some of my friends and people I have met in autistic groups, you know, I wanted to funnel my traffic to them. I shouldn't have that privilege. And all of the autistic advocates I had ever come across online at at the time, and this was 2017, were white and from the United States or United Kingdom, maybe a couple from Canada or Australia. And so we were very small. We started out with five, and then after a week, we were 11, mostly autistic people of color, and people loved it. A lot of people wanted to join. We just wanted to take that traffic that I was getting at Psych Central and keep linking it to other autistic people so that I wasn't the voice of autism as this person who is just entering this world. I mean, I knew all about autism from the mainstream perspective, from the deficit model, because I have been a teacher for 14 years. And then 
I was a trauma therapist (laughs) working largely with autistic people, but it's a totally different world when you interact with actually autistic people and you're reading actually autistic literature. The, The separation between the clinical literature and the experiential literature of autistic people writing about their own lives is so vast that even though I'm extremely obvious and I have all the the co-occurring conditions, you know, ADHD, tic disorder, dyslexia, OCD, all the things, synesthesia, cross dominance, which is being left eye, right hand, left foot dominant. And that is something that basically only happens to autistic people. So I had all these things um, and I'm extremely obvious now that I get it, but I went 37 years with a graduate education and all this experience and I just had no idea. So we just wanted to diversify the autistic narrative and the name neuroclastic means basically breaking your brain, (laughs) neuro meaning wires or strings, nerves, and classic meaning breaking. People were always saying that in the comments. Whoa, you just broke my brain. And that's what we want to do. We want to break all of those heuristics and stereotypes and, and all that cognitive dissonance people have when they think about autism so that they get out of that pathology paradigm and see us as fully human and complex and multidimensional as we are in reality. So, yeah. (laughs) All right. So you said that you were diagnosed later in life, right? When you were 37? Yes. I cannot believe that. I actually was diagnosed in 2006 and no one told me. And that is tragic. I endured so many traumas in that span of time that all, you know, and no one validates that you are actually different your whole life. Then everything you do that's different seems like just willful obstinance or, you know, like you're trying to be special snowflake and different, uh, purposefully. And so you don't believe that you're different. We all have serious imposter syndrome that we have to work through for the rest of our lives sometimes because of this. And so, but yeah, I was diagnosed. I had a full neuropsych eval in 2006, and that is when I got the ADHD diagnosis. But my chart says probably has Asperger's. But I didn't go for that because I had no idea. I can make eye contact. Um, I have empathy because they told us, you know, autistic people don't have empathy, which is absurd. So I just had no idea that I could be because the main thing that everyone talked about all the time was eye contact, which is so trivial. And we rarely ever mention that in the autistic community, you know. Mm -hmm. So, Kate, what was it like for you to find out about your autism? How old were you? Yeah, so I'm, I'll be 39 this month. And I think I was probably 37, same age as Tara, when I realized 
this particular cluster of experiences that I recognise so clearly in my children and in the people I work with also apply to me. And I have some embarrassment around that because I'm a therapist and I have had a lot of a lot of training and a lot of yeah, I mean, so much of my education was around understanding people's processes. Um, but neurodiversity is something that doesn't make it onto the curriculum of most counselling and psychotherapy courses. And therefore, neurodivergent people are underserved by psychotherapy generally. But also, I think we gaslight ourselves such a lot because as masking autistics, we grow up feeling very different, but working really hard not to be different or show that outwardly. So that time, by the time we get into our late 30s, we've kind of stopped believing ourselves and our own experiences. So, And I, you know, I still have a lot of, of processing to do where I still catch myself being surprised by some of the struggles I have because I've normalised it so much and I've assumed that that's the same for everyone. And it's only when I really dig into that, I'm like, oh gosh, no, it is uniquely difficult for me. Not all the people around me experience this in the same way. Um, So for me, my road into finding who I really am was through my children, advocating for their needs, especially when teachers would say to us that they would just grow out of these little quirks that that, that they had. And we were having to say, no, (laughs) we're not telling you there's something wrong. We're telling you that there's something wonderful about about our child but they don't see the world how you see it and as I started to connect with with my kids and see the world as they see it I realized that actually that's kind of the world as I see it too and whoa does everyone else not these these little people make a lot of sense to me so yeah that was that was my routine and I think that's pretty much a a common trajectory for late diagnosed autistics Mm, mm Yeah, and I just wanted to add to that. Um, Kate and I both have so many other forms of neurodivergence that we've known about. You know, Kate is stiff and dyslexic, and I'm dyslexic and ADHD and haptic disorder and all these other things. So they overlap so much in symptoms. And also when you're deaf or when you have tics, or you're dyslexic and you don't learn to read until you're in fifth grade like me. Those things explain a lot. So you you don't go the extra mile. But also in the 80s, to be diagnosed as autistic, you probably weren't even autistic. I only knew a few autistic people in my entire, you know, first 18 years of life. And they they probably had genetic conditions that weren't autism, but that was just kind of a word to give when someone is extremely severely disabled and needs 24 hour care. I remember a woman who was like a distant cousin and she had extremely short arms and a severe cleft palate and she was in a wheelchair and she had severe intellectual disability. And that is the first time I ever heard anyone say autism. And so maybe, you know, she was autistic. I just have a vague memory of that. But so you have a really hard time 
connecting. Uh, my brother would have been diagnosed as a level three autistic in the 80s, but he was only diagnosed with ADHD and Tourette's and dyslexia <laughs> and OCD and mutism. So all the things, but, you know, that that's another reason that, because um, people think that we have just lived a basically normal life and that could not be further from the truth. I have outlived autistic life expectancy at 41. I just turned 41. And that is uh, really harrowing. My best friend, my first love, another one of my local friends last summer, they have all ended their own lives. Mm. That's our reality. I've lost five friends uh, in the last few years and five very close people that I loved very much. And every week, someone we know, someone in their community, at least once a week, is in the hospital because they've made an attempt or they have succeeded. So we are not the, quote, high-functioning people that everyone thinks we just don't realize that we are sprinting and putting in a hundred times more effort than the people around us, just trying to maintain the high stress life of a non-autistic person. We can't multitask like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, what I would add to that is I had a diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome, ME, and there was no real reason for that that anyone could pinpoint and, and chronic fatigue is like a diagnosis of exclusion they rule out everything it's like an episode of house they have to rule out lupus first they rule out everything else and then what they come back with is well yeah chronic fatigue and it made no sense to me until I realized I was autistic and then the name that I gave to my chronic fatigue was autistic burnout and I realized my whole life had been a cycle of burnout and recovery but I'd managed it very very much on my own so I'd, I would take time off work and I would recover and then I would go back and I never really hit any other services so I, it never looked like a crisis it was very much self-managed and I bore the the consequences of that both physical and emotional you know really alone with that without the right supports and so it kept going working 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 to try and keep up with the expectations that were on, placed on me with no accommodation because I couldn't be accommodated to something I didn't know was different mm -hmm. a significant burnout and I don't know about you Tara but I feel like every time I've had a burnout I've lost something that ha I've never gained back again yeah I mean definitely I recently to go back on attention deficit meds. Now, apparently there are new laws that you have to do a drug test to get ADHD meds because they're a controlled substance. And my doctor's office is only a few blocks from my house. It took me 28 days to get there. Every day I tried, but I could not. I was frozen. I just have such profound anxiety. I can't leave my house hardly ever. And so I can't stop working. It's like a compulsion because I feel this constant guilt of never being able to catch up. So I, I wrote in an article the other day that I think I've slept an average of two to three hours 
my entire adult life. Like, wow. That is my average. I, I rarely sleep. I just can't turn my brain off. When I get to a doctor's office, finally, they send me to the emergency room because my blood pressure has gone up to like 250 over 150, where my resting is like 118 over 74. That's how extreme my anxiety is. My heart rate will be over 200. And they're like, oh, you're, you're about to stroke out. We gotta. So I, I can't even finish regular doctor's appointments because, and I'm afraid because of my anxiety that I'm in such severe fight or flight that I'm going to get arrested. Mm-hmm. A doctor has come to fill my lymph nodes, but my anxiety was so extreme just having them reach toward me like that. I fell backwards out of the chair and screamed. And so I get sent home until to get, go get some therapy or something. <laughs> There's no therapy high test enough for this. I need like elephant tranquilizers at this point. Uh, I wake up in the middle of surgeries. That is how hyperactive my nervous system is. Mm-hmm. You know, you see the videos online of people coming out of like um, wisdom to surgery and for like half an hour, they're just saying nonsense things. and. They're all groggy and those are hilarious. But when I have a surgery, I wake up in the middle of it, like a Bronco in the middle, like a big bull in the middle of a rodeo. Oh, that sounds really scary. It absolutely is. And so autistic advocates always get accused by the mainstream of, of being, you know, just a little quirky or having mild autism. But when you go to work with multiple organ failure, which I've done twice, sepsis and multiple organ failure, because I have learned to tolerate that much suffering and keep going and not not know what the acceptable threshold is for asking for help, because everything is so hard and so because I've been yellow at work. I've been sent by two different bosses, two different times to the hospital from, you know, walking in on time, wearing heels and having my clothes ironed and my makeup on and been sent away (laughs) because I was yellow. Like you have to go to the hospital right now and, and had emergency surgeries both of those days and was told both times, there's no way that you're alive. It's not medically possible. So people people need to stop calling us frauds and acting, you know, that high functioning label is or low functioning. They're both so insulting. Yeah. And so myopic, but everyone judges us by our observable behaviors. <laughs> right now we seem relatively normal, I'm sure. That is an illusion, a well-crafted one. <laughs> but um, looking at autistic people by their observable behaviors is is murder. It really is. Our labels are often about how much we inconvenience someone else. Yeah. So low functioning it means that my my autism impacts you very little. Doesn't mean it impacts me very little. Mm-hmm. And, and the same goes. Yeah. This is that shift away from the medical model, right? Of the 
diagnosing based on observable behaviors. Could you talk about that perspective of the social model of disability and how that pertains to autism? Sure. So the medical model is is based on what other people see as just basically that we are a neurotypical person, a non-autistic person with a series of deficits. So a person minus things. They think that we have social deficits and communication deficits, but recent research has shown what we all know, which is that we get along just fine with each other. We understand each other. It might take us a while to get there because we've been so conditioned and indoctrinated by society to be a certain way and to respond to questions a certain way. People approach social conditioning in very literal ways with us. They tell us how we're supposed to greet people. And and even if we weren't diagnosed, we still got all of that because non-autistic people regard us as rude and we actually regard them that way too, but no one has ever asked us before. And so all of the onus is on the autistic person to live in a way that that is not accommodating to their neurology, but that is convenient to everyone else. And so, you know, that repetitive behavior thing, we know we have extreme amounts of empathy. Some of us, just like anyone else, you know, not every autistic person has hyper empathy. My husband is the most wonderful and responsive person, but he does not know what to do unless you explicitly say it to him. He's also autistic. But um, I feel everyone's emotions magnified. So if you are around me with a slight amount of stress and you're doing any body language that looks remotely unhappy in any way, shape, or form, I magnify that to the point that I can't stand being in the same room with you just because I feel it that much. You know, I I watch a commercial with an abused animal, you know, these charities that have rescued pit bulls or whatever, and I am like catatonic afterwards. I can't watch ads at all because they, you know, they just affect me so profoundly. And so we don't know that we're autistic by looking at that, that kind of information. My doctors, my entire life, have tried to convince me that my father was a pedophile. And so I spent about 10 years not interacting with my dad and hating him and doubting because I can't stand to be touched. Hmm. Well, that's totally normal for an autistic person, but all of my behaviors that were related to touch, not being able to tolerate haircuts, those things are totally normal for autistics. And my father was a wonderful, hardworking man. He's probably also autistic. He was a coal miner. And so he worked about 70 hours a week. And it's absurd that I ever believed that, but about five different clinicians and doctors told me that I had all the symptoms of someone 
with childhood sexual abuse, and I couldn't think of anybody else it could have been. So, and then my, when I was asked why, when's the first time I remember not being able to sleep because I've never been able to sleep. And that is also normal for an autistic person. When you don't have the sensory ability to feel sleepiness <laughs> or your internal signals. And also when you're chronically overstimulated, you have to manually sort all of that stuff that's, that's in your short-term memory before you can fall asleep. And so we have to <laughs> lie in bed and overthink for hours, but that's normal for us. But my father used to come home from work. He would get home about 11 at night. And he would just come in all three of my and my brother's rooms and kiss us on the cheek. And I thought uh, I would tell my doctors, um, you know, that that is when I couldn't sleep because I would smell the coal mines and his beard would touch my cheek. And then I would feel it burning all night and I would feel like the wetness of a, a kiss on my cheek. And I couldn't stand that. but. Everyone had to just go automatically to, well, that sounds like, you know, you were having a reaction to being sexually abused and you've just blocked that out. You just don't remember that part. And so that's the most absurd thing. But I literally went 10 years of my adult life really needing my family. But uh, all these behaviors... And there, you know, I could tell you a million more stories like this of all these things that I was made to believe why I was doing this or that, or I hated myself for them because I thought that I was just being overly picky. So looking at our observable behaviors and applying them to a neurotypical paradigm is, is really dangerous and unfair. And to read about autism from autistic people is so dramatically different. It's kind of an emergency and no one's listening. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I think this would actually be a good time to talk about that artwork. So when we first met, Kate, you shared a couple pieces of art that you've created. And I thought it was just such a powerful image describing what's going on in an autistic person's mind. Maybe you can go ahead and explain. I think you could do a better job. Okay. So the two images, there's a black and white image of the silhouette of a head. And in that silhouette, there are, there's white letters and they spell out the kinds of messages that lots of people receive, but specifically autistics receive around how they should be in the world and what they shouldn't do in order to be worthy of love and belonging and connection and to be just to be human so phrases like don't be so dramatic don't be so sensitive keep your hands still quiet hands they are the kind of throwaway comments that autistic children hear and if you're not autistic or if, if you're not really listening for them, they could feel throwaway. They could feel almost nothing, you know, just sit properly. What is the proper way to sit? But all of the time, the autistic person, the autistic child is taking these messages in and thinking, I, I'm only okay 
if I take up as little space as I possibly can, if I keep really still, if I can make myself and my body and my mind do the things that you're telling me it needs to do. And the consequences of that are dire. When we talk about suicide prevention, as much as we talk about sexual abuse and other types of trauma, we need to think about the messages that we are telling, giving children about who they are, how they move through the world, how they process information, how their bodies move, how they sit, how they express themselves, what language they use. Because teaching a child to mask their authentic selves is a huge risk factor for significant mental health difficulties and suicide down the line. So that was the first graphic that we put out. I think it was in um, in April this year. And then Tara messaged me and said, I think we need to do the opposite. I think we've, we've shown people what, what not to do and we've shown people the impact and it was powerful and people reacted to that and shared that a lot. So in psychotherapy land, in the, in the world of transactional analysis where I'm from, we'd, we'd talk about these messages as introjects. So messages that we take on in childhood from our parents and from the, the society around us, from authority. So that was the first ring. What we needed from next was to show what the alternative is, the permissions that children need in order to counter any of that stuff that could cause them harm. And the overall permission that kids need and, and the affirmation that kids need is, I love you as you are. Not, it's unconditional. It's not, I love you so long as you, if you, when you. It's just, I love you as you are. And there are permissions that go into that second row, which is kind of more rainbow and bright, which is, um, it's okay to move your body. There are no wrong, way to, wrong, wrong ways to move. You can stim freely. You have a right to communication and those kinds of permissions. And they were, although I drew it, so technically made it, I contacted my friends. So some of my therapist friends, some of my um, autistic, autistic therapist friends and said, what did you need to hear? What did you long to hear? And either didn't or did. And it was beautiful. And they didn't have to think about that. It wasn't like they were like, oh, let me ponder on that for a while and come up with something they knew. They knew what they grieved for, and they were able to say, I wanted somebody to say, it's okay to do this or that, or I needed to hear this. So I put all of those permissions and affirmations into the second drawing. And I think we can learn a lot from how people interact with social media. And the way that people interacted with that particular graphic was really different to the things that Tara and I we make stuff together. It's it's super fun. Parallel play. We're really good at that. So it was really different to how people had interacted to the other illustrations and graphics we've made. So we'd made things that were shared much more widely than this this particular thing. We've made things that have been shared like 400, 500 times. Am I making that up, Tara? Right. No, we had, we had some of those. Uh, we had lots of or in 500 and 800 share ones before. And there were thousands, right? There was ones that were shared thousands of times. Yeah. This one, not so much. The, peop- the way that people, autistic people reacted to this was to message, can I have a print of this? Mm. Um, is this? Can I buy this somewhere? Autistic people's reaction to this 
particular graphic was that they wanted to hold it close. They really connected with the part of them that was seeing something they longed for and had never had, and they didn't want to share it with other people. They wanted it for themselves. And I think that, that for me, spoke, spoke volumes. Yeah, that's really beautiful. I just got the chills. Yeah. So if anybody is wondering how to, how to attend to their child, knowing that they're autistic, that's a really good starting point. Mm-hmm. All the indications from autistic adults are telling me that's what I needed. It's just, it's that simple. Yeah, yeah. And maybe we can post a direct link to these images in our show notes so people can go see them. Yeah, sure. So we've mentioned on this podcast before the double empathy problem that was coined by Damien Milton in the early 2010s. Could you describe what that means for our listeners who are not familiar with it? Yes. So Simon Baron Cohen, who's Sasha Baron Cohen's cousin or Borat's mm-hmm. cousin, uh, he has been one of the quote top autism researchers and all autistic people are so angry at him because he came up with this theory that autistic people are quote mind blind, which is so ridiculously offensive, uh, it's hard to even talk about. So he said that autistic people cannot recognize the internal states of others and respond to them appropriately and characterize autistic empathy as a just a bunch of deficits. A lot of people read that in a very surface way, and so they equated it with their idea of what being a sociopath is. And so there is a lot of like pop psych and self-help, self-published books about autism, tons, hundreds, thousands, that basically equate autistic people with not being able to feel guilt or to care at all about other people. And, and Baron Cohen didn't frame it that way so much, but that is just the way that people interpreted that. And all autistic people can tell you that because of their differences, other people often have a visceral negative reaction to us. We also have that same visceral negative reaction to them. But when we do it, they give us behavior therapy. They blame everything on us. For this disconnect and they call us defiant and say that we don't have empathy, which is absurd. So Damian Milton's double empathy is that you don't understand us if you're not autistic in the same way that we don't understand you because we have a different just internal set of rules for engagement There are a lot of things that non-autistic people do that that very much offend us or uh, cause us to feel profound anxiety that don't make any sense. They make no logical sense anyway. (laughs) Could you give some examples, Tara? All fads, (laughs) you know, whatever behavior is embarrassing, like stemming, these are social norms that have no logic behind them. 
And everything that non-autistic people do seem to be subconsciously upholding the status quo, right? So even when you look at making change, non-autistic people come up with solutions that are still socially acceptable. So they're not really usually solutions that break the status quo, but autistic people seem to be wired to not only not sense the importance of status quo and hierarchy, like why do you call the CEO sir or ma'am, but you call the custodian by their first name? And the custodians are supposed to call you Mr. or Mrs. whatever. You know, even Mr. or Mrs. gender is a social norm that uh, autistic people just don't have the same relationship to. What is the proper amount of deference that we're supposed to show to a police officer or a teacher when we do not feel those hierarchies of social merit that everyone else does? So, you know, even even our non-autistic peers did this. They formed pecking orders as early as preschool and kindergarten and cut us out of them. But we don't perceive those pecking orders internally, we might eventually learn to play the games because everyone else is doing them, but that is not natural to us. So to say that we lack empathy, I have never understood why people love American football. I don't understand why people the size of refrigerators banging their heads into each other when you only have one brain. Like, why is it exciting to see two groups of large people running after a ball, an oblate spheroid made out of pigskin. Giving themselves a TBI. Yeah, giving yourself a TBI over a dead animal (laughs) carcass. Like none of that makes any sense to me. It seems absurd, but everyone does it and no one asks why is that absurd, except autistic people. We all, like, that's not to say that autistic people can never love sports. Sometimes they do, especially sports statistics. I know some of those people who have them all memorized. But, uh, you know, church, oh my goodness, religion. Almost all of us have totally deviated from our childhood religious practices um, a lot. (laughs) Or maybe switch religions totally and we get kicked out of our families for not doing that. Uh, We get kicked out of our families because we can't stand their racism or their queer phobia. But it's all about upholding the status quo, the social Darwinism that everyone else has. So our empathy is totally intact. (laughs) We totally understand each other. We don't begin our conversations with how are you unless we actually are curious about how they really are. But we also don't ask because that's coercive. We're asking them to give information that they might not be in the mood to give. So we wait for them to say. If they think it's important, they'll tell us. And so we don't respond to telling someone, oh, that must have been so hard for you when they tell us something hard that happened. Because that uh, is assuming their emotional states, 
and that they want us to respond to their emotions. We don't want, I mean, some people, some autistics might, but in my experience and how I am and how Kate is, and we talk about this all the time, we don't want to validate each other's emotions. We want to see how close you can get to understanding what it's like. So if I tell you something and you don't have a child about how my child is extremely hyperactive, and you tell me about this time that you adopted a shelter puppy that chewed up all your furniture, I don't think that you are trying to one-up me. I think that you're saying this is as close as I can get to knowing what that's like. And I think of that as profoundly empathetic because you're trying to tell me that you've heard me, that this is where you are, and then you're giving me permission implicitly to explain how they're not the same or how they're exactly the same. So we we do this automatically. Other autistic people don't feel like that's being dismissive. We feel like that is being responsive because you're not trying to coerce. I don't understand why other people would tell me what emotions I have. <laughs> Why would that help me in any way? Or how is that showing empathy? I want them to tell me how close they can get to where I am so I know, you know, how well are we really relating? And also the fact that they would do that is such an act of care. Like when somebody looks inwards to... I always use the same example lately, but... I had a bereavement just before Christmas and it was a really big one and it kind of kicked my ass a bit. And my neurotypical friends were great. They really were. They were they wanted to know if I wanted to talk about it and if there was anything they could do for me and you know they they were brilliant. But my autistic friends had a different reaction to it. Their response was to tell me about the profound losses that they connected to in their lives and how it, how those losses just broke them into a thousand pieces and then how they put their lives back together after and what changed and how it absolutely screwed up with their executive function. They couldn't, kept getting lost on the way to make coffee because they just couldn't concentrate. I used to teach counselling skills to groups of counsellors who run a crisis intervention service. So with that in mind, I, I kept thinking about with my new foundation, my new kind of I'm autistic and these are my people, about how I had been taught to believe that the right way to respond to somebody who is sharing something about themselves is to ask more questions and to say, gosh, that sounds like it was really tough for you and and just keep delving and delving into it and not really give anything from yourself because the more neurotypical assumption is that when you do that, you're making it about you. That's the kind of belief that goes with that. You're, you're taking the attention and you're making it about you. And that's where the double empathy problem comes in here in, in therapeutic relationships because of that belief that is held by the neuromajority that when so, you share something, and someone else says, oh, I have a thing like that too. That's taking over. Mm -hmm. If you can separate yourself from that belief, from that, that way of viewing it, and say that if to neurotypicals it can feel like that, but to neurodivergent people, it's not. What I felt when my friends shared their 
experiences of deep loss wasn't you're making all this about yourself it was I'm not alone I'm not Mm. alone in this and you were really broken too and and your heart was shattered and you put it back together and you care enough about me to revisit that pain in yourself in order to help me feel okay again I mean that's a gift if that's a gift if you can see it but if all you want to see is it's not how we do things around here you've just made it all about you then you'll miss the beauty of autistic empathy and autistic friendship and connection because of the double empathy problem Mm -hmm. yeah that is so well said and I'd never heard it broken down like that this is so helpful for me to actually understand and take your perspective Right. And I say this as somebody who has taught counseling skills, who has taught the very, very same problem that has affected me my whole life. Because I was I was taught that there is only one way, which is deeply unempathic. If you only recognize your empathy as being empathic, then that's a pretty unempathic view on things. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it doesn't sit well with me that for a lot of time I taught people to misunderstand autistic empathy and I've got some making up to do to myself and to my community. Sure. There is another thing that um, when an autistic person says, I'm really going through something, the other autistic person might start sending them ridiculous memes or funny YouTube videos, which might seem totally inappropriate to non-autistic people. If you are autistic and you tell someone something about, you know, your personal suffering and you're laughing and they look at you and say, oh, I'm sorry, that must be so hard. That's really jarring to me when I tell Kate (laughs) about something that uh, (laughs) I'm going through that is really just a dumpster fire, which is often, that's kind of my my baseline, is living in a dumpster fire in the middle of a wildfire. <laughs> uh, she will either make fun of me <laughs> or she will send me really dark and nihilistic memes. And that not just Kate, this is, you know, most of my autistic friends we would never want to be like, hey, let's go have a spa date and a girls' night out. We usually would not even use the word girls because what in the world is gender anyway? Uh, so, you know, there's not, we're not going to put together a spa package <laughs> for each other unless they expressly state that that's what they want, which is fine. We'd totally do it then, but. We get each other, and I get so exhausted trying to tell non-autistic people anything because they don't get it. They really don't. It's not their fault. They're wonderful. They're trying. But um, I don't share anymore at all with people unless I feel like they're going to be able to laugh with me because I have a lot of hard circumstances in my life, and that's how I deal with it. And it's not showing me empathy to feel sorry and pity for me. It, that's not what I need. 
So autistic people don't assume what each other needs. We wait and let them. And that's why we say a factual thing in response. We might say a factual thing about ourselves, or we might state a fact (laughs) that we've read somewhere. But we don't say, we always put it in ourselves because it gives the other person total freedom to respond however they want Mm -hmm. without coercing them. Because if you say something about them, you're directing the conversation and you don't know what they need. Because as an autistic person, if you ask me questions, I answer them as a compulsion. Even if it's a rhetorical question, that's what autistic people do because you've led the conversation. My empathy is to give you enough room to lead things. And so when I speak about myself, I've not coerced you in a direction. So earlier when you were talking about waking up in the middle of surgery and I said, that sounds really scary. <laughs> what was going on in your head when I said that? Did that stand out to you? Yeah. I, I mean, and when you said it, I thought, wow, that was very empty. Yeah. And I don't think you're rude for it or anything like that. I know that you're trying, but like, um, if I said that to Kate, she would probably make fun. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. So my reaction to that, so your your gut reaction was, God, that's really scary. Mine was, I bet you really freak those people out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I, yeah. Yeah. In a private chat, Kate would have sent me, a, if we were just talking, she would have sent me a meme of like a wrestler throwing chairs around or something to show like, you know, just going full turbo on a bunch of people and scaring them to death. <laughs> and then we would have laughed at that because that that's really what happened. <laughs> but I, I feel like I need to point out because I have told people I'm a therapist and I'm realizing I'm not looking like a great one right now in some, <laughs> <laughs> in some context, is that this happens on the foundation of a friendship. We've spent time getting to know each other and we respond to uh, to each other as we know what, what we need from each other. There are other people who I would respond completely differently to. Hmm. And I can do that because I have so much empathy because I'm not immune to other people's minds and how they respond. I'm really attuned to how people react when I say things and how their body changes and how their energy shifts and how their face and their micro expressions are. If I try something out with somebody and it doesn't work, then that's not how I do it next time. If we really were so mind blind, why would we mask? Hmm. Why would autistic masking be a thing? Both doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. The truth about autistic empathy is that we have so many mirror neurons that we feel it so intensely is that sometimes we can't engage with it or we we're paralyzed by it and we don't get and we don't react in the way you think we're going to or that you recognize as empathic. Mm-hmm. I say you, I mean, you know, people out there. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes it's the intensity of the empathy that means that we sit quietly with it or move past it because we don't want to place another demand. We know what demands mean for us, and we don't want to place another demand for emotional labor. Mm -hmm. And that is a lot of times when we communicate, we, you know, processing is really hard. It's not an automatic process for us, which means that we 
We don't make a lot of assumptions. We do a whole lot of overthinking, which makes us really good citizens of the world because we consider everything profoundly. So when we talk to someone, we're doing what I call joint processing. So when I tell Kate something and then she tells me her experience, she's helping me to process what I, you know, I don't always understand my feelings. I'm usually not trying to understand my feelings so much as trying to to brace myself for what might be coming next or to understand if something was fair. See, I've been gaslighted my whole life like every other autistic person. And so another thing that an autistic person will regularly do is instead of responding to your emotion and saying that must have been really hard, they'll say that was really unfair. That person was being a jerk. That person was not observing your boundaries. Or they might be telling you, asking you questions to help understand, like, it's not to drill you. It's to help you process so that you can fully understand why this person with these totally different rules did this thing. So when we're asking questions, it's not to be invalidating. It's to help you process, like, because we don't know, have I misread this? <laughs> so other autistic people know what that's like. And we're asking questions to help clarify. So we might go through something and joint process it from every angle. And it would look exhausting to non-autistic people. It might look like an argument, but we're really like reducing the other person's burden of cognitive and emotional labor by helping them consider all these angles so that they're not processing the same thing for three years. Mm -hmm. So that is a really social and really empathetic way to respond to autistic people. But when we do that with non-autistic people who understand the world in gists and approximations and vagueness and automatic everything, (laughs) then um, they usually see it as us being nitpicky or interrogating them or, you know, so this just this lifetime of because we're the minority, because there are more of other people, they get to just blanket accuse everything that we do of being a deficit. Mm-hmm. And that's really messed up. <laughs> I think um, often autistic adults are accused of or are spoken about as being really angry and combative and some of that is about how we are perceived how our communication is perceived but some of it is just like yeah we're tired we're tired of being perceived as being something we're not and then you can only after a while of trying to explain you start to actually get kind of angry (laughs) but nobody asks why we're angry they just like they dismiss our anger, which is often righteous. So I guess I would like I would love to see people saying, "Hang on, autistic adults are angry about this." Given that they've got such a lot to do, <laughs> why would they spend so much time being so angry about this particular thing? What is it? Why is this so important? Because we're very pragmatic. If we've decided that we're angry about a particular thing, there'll be a reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So back to the language and the communication, I know that some autistic people can be very direct, very blunt, like no filter, and also prefer things very concretely and with clear expectations. Like Tara, you were talking about the vagueness that neurotypicals kind of use in communication. And can you elaborate more on that and why this kind of abstract way of communicating can be really confusing and why it can lead to a lot of misunderstanding? Sure. We see this the most in parents groups where parents are coming to ask autistic people for advice about their kids. And they'll begin with a behavior that their kid is doing and an assumption of why. Or they'll just say, my kid's really been so disrespectful. I'll give an example. So there was a parent of an older teenager who was saying that her child is really disrespectful, her son. And she said that she asked him just to load the dishwasher. And I did a, I did a thing <laughs> online, um, that it had thousands of comments on social media from autistic people. So none of this is ever just me having my own thoughts. I liaise with thousands of autistic people every single day. So I would never just say this is what autistic people largely do without creating my own body of evidence every single day of my life. No days off ever, at least 10 hours a day. So autistic people, I put this scenario that I saw a parent type up. I changed some details so that I wouldn't, if they ever found it, it wouldn't put them on the spot too much. But this parent had believed that when her son offered to wash the dishes, that he was just arguing with everything. Like he couldn't just do a simple thing that she asked. And when I kind of trans, I put the conversation online, autistic people were like, well, yeah, he cares about the environment. The dishwasher wasn't full. So he told his mom, it's, it's not full yet. Should I wash them? in the sink. And, um, she says, no, I want the dishwasher run. I need clean dishes for dinner. And he says, well, I'll just wash those things that you need. And she gets more and more angry. She sees him countering her as just being disrespectful. And then he mentions the environment and she's like thinking that he's trying to call her a hypocrite. But all autistic people saw this conversation like thousands and were like, you know, they understood that she really just wanted simplicity and they weren't communicating well. She just wanted it over with. But he believed that she had the same level of dedication to the environment that he did because she says she did. And so that, you know, even when people are politically the same, Autistic people are usually much more dedicated, much more concrete with their morality. And I don't mean that as rigid. We are very much more relativist. But when when we know that something is going to have a negative impact on the future, even if it's a small one, we still care and we still try. So 
this person was just trying to be empathetic, but the parent thought that they were being disrespectful. But it took a lot of questions from autistic people to get the parent to explain what was really happening. We usually aren't ever being passive aggressive. People read us that way. Autistic people ask for that kind of specificity because the details will always give you the answer. For autistic people and non-autistic people can't move past their cognitive dissonance usually enough to really get us. It takes a long time and a lot of study. We've had however many years of life we are old. That's how many years we've had of studying non-autistic people to understand them. And so they think that they have this empathy and they get everyone. And the more empathy someone feels like they have, the worse they are for us because they just think they get it because that's what empathy is and emotional intelligence too. That is what determines your career success and career health more than your level of knowledge or your talent or your work ethic or your integrity is your quote emotional intelligence. And that really means how well can you respond to people to uphold the existing power structures and status quo? That's really if you filter it down and study it and break it down enough. And when you tell people that, they get really angry. <laughs> but autistic people are doing things because they're logical and ethical and practical. And that means that you really need specificity. And that would help a lot to also reduce racism and queerphobia and xenophobia and just cultural differences and socioeconomic differences if we were more specific and we stopped doing things, you know, by our own internal heuristics, which is what empathy is. And that's why people flock to like people. That's why when you go into a school cafeteria and you will see these divisions and they're racial and they're class because Empathy is really like understanding people who have a lot of really similar experience, but autistic people are not like that. Your friends are tend to be so extremely different from us in complementary ways. We don't need or want them to be like us because we don't need to uphold any status quo or social norms. And so we don't need to uphold any invisible hierarchies. And so we need that specificity so that everyone can have their own cultural norms and their own class norms. And we can troubleshoot how, how are these things inaccessible and inequitable. So yeah, autistic empathy would be amazing for the whole world to learn and model what we're doing because it would go so far to just obliterate all the inequities in the world. It just hit me like autistic kids and adults often have one really close friend for a really long time or just a few. And like when Kate and I are talking, we might say a really deep and profound thing. And the other person responds with one word from like, that is a signal from, a conversation we had a year and a half ago. Um, 
And so, you know, we're talking about autistics having, we kind of have an all or nothing memory. So what we record, we might store forever, um, especially if it's important. And so it's really showing a profound empathy that uh, when we respond to the other person with just one word, it's like, yeah, here, I recognize the pattern in this. And I have paid attention to you. And I remember this very highly specific thing from a long time ago. Example. I know that you <laughs> don't don't panic. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm I can't wait for this. <laughs> I know that you don't really celebrate your birthday so much, but I know that your special interest is Moby Dick. Right? So yeah. I did what any really good friend would do and completely ignored Tara's birthday. That's friendship for you. And then on the publication anniversary of Moby Dick in the US, which is different to the publication date in the U- in the UK, I found this out when I was going on my deep dive. Um, <laughs> a, a friend and I sent Tara some flowers because that would be like a date that's acceptable to celebrate something amazing that's happened with a quote from Moby Dick on the card. And the quote was, um, <laughs> now bearing in mind, I had to find um, a florist. Do you call them florists? Yeah, a florist uh, on yeah. the internet in Virginia from the UK and persuade them that this was okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I got this florist to write from hell's heart, I stab at thee and then send these flowers (laughs) to this person um, who wouldn't then take out a restraining order. um, (laughs) Because that's autistic friendship. But yeah, I was like trying, having this conversation online with the florist saying, no, it's okay. I know this is going to be weird. And they're like, (laughs) okay, so what's a phone number? I'm like, I I don't know. I've never met her. (laughs) Like, so tell me again. (laughs) Tell me again what we're doing. <laughs> yeah. And it was like weed flowers too. It wasn't like roses. <laughs> so it was like some really nice wild flowers. Well, I decided that, that roses would be awful, so it had to be kind of like wild flowers. I was going for a particular vibe. So mm-hmm. it involved quite a, a specific search online and then a very strange conversation. Yeah. <laughs> And now I have that card. I have like five things on my mantle in my bedroom over my fireplace that are like my favorite things in the world. (laughs) And that from hell's heart, I stab at the card is up there (laughs) on display. It was like my favorite thing ever. And that will make no sense to non-autistic people. And they will probably find it terrifying. (laughs) I see it as a beautiful sign of your friendship that you guys get each other and you're able to send each other things like that. <laughs> yeah. Cause if it was like, if it mentioned emotions at all, I would be like, are you drunk? <laughs> what are you doing? Kate? <laughs> you know, like, did you forget? Have you ever met me before? So yeah, I think that our remarkable capacity for memory plays a lot into our personalities and you know we forget 
a lot of things like people's faces. <laughs> we forget dates and where our keys are. But if we, you know, when something is important to us, we tend to remember it forever, sometimes verbatim. Yeah. And so we might quote each other like six months later, some, you know, very obscure thing that seemed to be in passing. Mm-hmm. And that is to say, I have really paid attention to you and I'm responding to you and I've memorized the contours of your personality and the things that you love. And so our whole lives we've been taught that that's wrong Hmm. and that's selfish. I I remember being told one time, because I never, I don't buy things for myself. I don't do things for myself. Like I go broke constantly because I donate everything I do at least 120 hours of free labor to like public service every single week. And so I I have been told by non-autistic people that I was selfish because I won't remember your birthday (laughs) probably, or I won't respond or the way that you expect, but it's just been really jarring sometimes the comments that I've gotten from non-autistic people. And this is one reason that autistic people are so opposed to ABA therapy. Mm -hmm. Even if the therapist really loves children and really cares about autistic children, they will not be able to set goals. First of all, you can't set goals in ABA that are not ableist. Insurance won't accept it, at least in the United States. So the goals have to be basically... What is this behavior that we can change that upholds the status quo? That is really what ABA is. And so, you know, every ABA therapist is like, oh, I'm not trying to make this person less autistic. I'm just trying to make sure they have a better life and that they don't get bullied and blah, blah, blah. But they don't understand that society already does that to us and they're just escalating a process. And what really needs to happen is society needs to just listen to us and understand that we have our own internal heuristics. And people say, well, that's just you high-functioning autistic people. But like Kate and I, uh, yesterday, the day before, we have this 13-year-old non-speaking poet. His name is Anantha Krishnamurthy. He publishes on Neuroclastic. And he and I have been having this, without even directly communicating with each other, this profoundly, I mean, it looks psychic. (laughs) It is so profoundly empathetic interchange of just reacting in this way to each other's just random things that we've said. And he's putting them in poems that... His mother, I talked to her last night. She doesn't really understand what he's saying, you know, or or why he's coming up with these things. She's very curious to understand, and she loves to hear that these things aren't random. There's a profound empathy driving them. And this is someone that we've we've only personally interacted in in like two zoom meetings briefly um but because we don't automatically get each other we have to make manuals 
And autistic people have to learn the non-autistic manual to survive because non-autistic people have the privilege because you vastly outnumber us to just say, these are deficits that you need to change. And so that is why ABA therapy can be so inappropriate, vastly inappropriate for us because we shouldn't be taught to perform even when they think, you know, I'm just teaching you to use the bathroom. Well, why can't, why are we not using the restroom independently? That's a sensory issue. We can't feel it until we're too full or it's a connective tissue disorder. Like most of us have that, um, you know, our tissue stretch too much. And so we can't control them as well as people without a connective tissue disorder. And so is it, Healthy and normal for child development to have a stranger dress and undress them aggressively over and over to force them to sit naked on a toilet in front of them? Or is that abusive because it's not a behavior that they are intentionally, you know, engaging in? It's a sensory issue that needs an accommodation. And so a lot of us at Neuroclastic have talked privately and a lot of autistic advocates have talked privately that we use like incontinence products. We have a man who is a very successful bioengineer and he was, he was talking about, he never wrote the article, but he wanted to about how he wears pull-ups every day. And so people at his job don't know that he's autistic There's nothing sad about it. You know, he has relationships. He's a father. He's fine. It's not that big of a deal and no one knows, but uh, it's just, why do we have to be so aggressively trained to be someone else? That's not natural. That's destroying our developmental trajectory to, to have it constantly interrupted with or without ABA with or without speech and language therapy, with or without occupational therapy. Yeah, and this kind of goes back to Kate's graphic, that black and white one. Mm. You're constantly being told that you're not enough or that something is wrong with you. That can cause a lot of harm in the long run. Now, what do you think, going back to the kind of communication breakdown between neurotypicals and autistic people, What would you like to see taught in schools about how to communicate with autistic peers? Neuroclastic has published some, we call them neuro-inclusive stories, and they're kind of a clapback to these god-awful social stories that, this is not to come down on social stories as they were originally intended to help one specific child by making a story about that child so that it would reduce their social or just their anxiety in general about new situations. So they were intended to help autistic kids process things in advance so that they would be less nervous. Mm -hmm. But mainly the behavior industry and, and the way that they do things and their benevolent colonizer ways have created this spinoff of social stories where there's generic, where they teach autistic kids to behave like non-autistic kids. So, you know, this is how you play with your peers. 
when there's a game and they're shaming. So we create a clap back to that called neuroinclusive stories that are intended for autistic and non-autistic kids and to all learn some people like one is called chatting versus info dumping. So it says, you know, it shows children and it's, it, it shows that some kids like to talk just a little bit about a lot of subjects and that's called chatting. And some kids like to talk about one subject very deeply often. And it shows that you can let this child who really is obsessed with vinyl records or trains or jellyfish or whatever it is, that you can allow this person to bring their context to a conversation. And then you respond with your own context. And then you can understand that they are asking you basically, how does my thing relate to your thing? So you can include the way that they need to learn is to understand things according to a familiar and safe and enjoyable and understandable context. So we know that contextual learning is advantageous. And we try as, as educators, you know, as a teacher, we, we get trainings on this all the time. We need to connect what we teach to prior knowledge. Autistic kids do that amazingly. We are wired to do that. We aggressively seek to connect. We love learning. So we want to connect things to our prior knowledge, but our teachers don't allow it. I had this one student who was, um, his highest grade was a 13% in any of his classes. And I was an English teacher, so I could really get away with this. I noticed that he was writing in these composition books every single day, all day, fan fiction novels based on this old cartoon that was for adults called Invader Zim. And my husband, when I first met him, he had a shrine. This is this is a very autistic thing. He had a shrine in his room of Invader Zim, like plush, you know, collector's items and things from, the, they're all from the 90s. And I didn't meet him until 2012. And it was pristine. His house was a wreck. But this shelf was like, you know, like a religious shrine. And so I had that context. Autistic people tend to gravitate to the same things. So a lot of autistic <laughs> people out there are still doing Invader Zim all the time, even though, you know, that was from the 90s because that's what we do. We, we are drawn to it. And I'm positive that that was autistic creators because, <laughs> you know, that's why we get drawn to the same thing is because we recognize mind structured like ours. But anyway, I just let him do every single assignment within the context of Invader Zim. So if we're writing a story that's a memoir, I just let him write as if he was personally Invader Zim. It was fine. Mm -hmm. He had like a 98% in my class after that. And, um, you know, this, this kid who's writing advanced novels every single day with like, profound understanding of writing and literature just innately and and remarkable grammar and syntax and why would he need to fail because he wasn't doing the things that I, everyone else was doing well that's fine doing what everyone else is doing is going to get you 
nowhere as an autistic person. So I just let him do what he wanted. The work he produced was amazing. Instead of asking him to do grammar worksheets, I asked him to correct his own work, his, his novels that when he finished one, he just left it on the floor wherever he was and started a new one. Wasn't even trying to save them. He just loved to do it. So why can't we do that with autistic kids? That's how learning happens is tying it to pre-existing context. So, and that's sort of done in schools, at least it is here anyway. So my, my kids, teachers pick a theme every term, right? And that's their classroom theme. And they do all their learning based around theme. What's the difference if it's a special interest and you do all your learning around your special interest? Mm -hmm. It seems to me that the difference is that the teacher picks one the school or whoever sets curriculum and the autistic child picks the other and one is given priority because there is a sort of hierarchy of worthiness of what is worth dedicating a whole lot of time and energy and passion on but you know the, the format is there for it already in every school we pick a theme you work to it you, you learn all sorts of things in connection with that thing and non-autistic people remember when I said that they operate in gist and vagueness and approximations and they're multitaskers non-autistic people are multitaskers and so there's this underlying value that is especially prevalent in western predominantly white countries that is hyper aggressively valuing independence and that's never going to work for autistic people we're not independent. You wouldn't have a surgeon or an airplane pilot or someone with a highly technical specialized job answering their own calls, doing their own taxes <laughs> and paperwork. <laughs> and But that is what non-autistic people excel at doing a lot of things, right? So autistic people are specialists. We would be fine if the surgeon and the secretary made the same paycheck. I would have no problem with that. I don't even care if I make a paycheck. Like, I just need to be kept alive and let me do these things that I can really do, that I'm wired to do, that I love so much that you can't make me go to sleep or quit working. Like, I will do it all day, every day. But I can't shop for myself. I can't meal plan. There's a theory about autism that Dr. Dinah Murray, who just passed away a week or so ago, a revolutionary autistic researcher who created this theory of monotropism or autism as a difference in interests, being having very hyper specialized interests. And and the converse, non-interests. And so we're specialists. And a lot of the most pioneering, world-changing people, like Tesla and Einstein and um, Flannery O'Connor and just all these literary greats and all these scientists and astrophysicists and quantum physicists, were autistic people. Mm -hmm. And... They were amazing, but they also were super weird. They didn't blend into society at all. You know, Tesla, he 
got hit by a taxi going to feed his pigeons that he loved more than people. And then he died in his hotel room with no one knowing that he was injured because he didn't want to talk to them. I know exactly why, because I would have done the same thing. We are pioneering. We are chaotic <laughs> in, in our process. It would be really nice if we had more interdependence and more collectivism so that we allow people with these. And, and you know, we might not even have profound talents. That, you know, you have people like Cody Lee who won America's Got Talent. He is one of about 25 people in the world with a total audiographic memory. So if he heard a song when he was two, Mozart, he can play it right now in his 20s. That's impressive. Even if he's only heard it once. It is. It's remarkable. Or Stephen Wiltshire who can fly over a city for three minutes and then draw the entire city like every window on every building. When it would take most people like months to learn to navigate small portions of a city, he can do the whole thing in a few minutes. And he was diagnosed as severely intellectually disabled as a child. We're not disabled in the way that people believe. We have an uneven distribution of resources and we need to be allowed to work in a way that advantages us according to our strengths And we need accommodations for the things that we can't do. We can't be asked to be the well-rounded, neurotypical person that everyone else is who can do everything because we never will be able to. And I guess that's in the sort of the big circularity of everything that takes us back to where we started with, you know, neuroplastic, which is why it works. It's because it has all sorts of people with all sorts of special interests and skills and passions coming together to educate just on their their thing the thing that they love there's never any pressure when I found neuroclastic as a as a community and joined the contributors group it was just like the nicest collective space that I'd been in there was never any pressure from anyone to do anything there was just like we need someone has anyone got an interest in this because this needs kind of doing I guess and then some people would just show up and say yeah I really love that I'll do that and when we have meetings it kind of makes me laugh sometimes because um it's wildly accessible so you'll have like audio and um closed captions and then people are sharing screens and then checking that everyone's understood things and does anyone need a summary and then someone will say oh we could do this and then say but just to let you know I'm not saying that you have to do this I'm not the boss we're just like it's just everyone just taking really <laughs> care of each other and not putting heaps of pressure on it's a collective and I think that's why it works as well as it does mm-hmm. all right well Tara and Kate this has been such a lovely conversation I would like to close with one last question What advice would you give to neurotypicals who are looking for ways to be better allies to autistic people? Read and follow autistic advocates and creators. Pick those people who are heavily involved in the autistic community who are neuroclastic. I'm biased, but we have people from six continents from all intersections of being autistic with all of the co-occurring conditions and we have non-speakers and people always say, you know, you're just a bunch of privileged, blah, blah, blah. But the, the same 
people who are being shocked at Judge Rotenberg Center when given access to meaningful and reliable communication options and the right access, accessibility, and respect, and, you know, a communication and regulation partner. That is something that we advocate for. That works a whole lot better than electroshock. Pay attention to us. We aren't just, you know, a bunch of shiny, quirky, slightly different from neurotypical people. We're everyone, and you will understand us, and we can really enrich your world. And so it's not, we don't need saviors, unless you want to help us with our paperwork. Oh, my goodness, and marketing. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, we would really love someone who understands marketing um, to help us. But otherwise, just pay attention to us, share our content, read about us, interact, ask us questions. Oh my goodness, we love being asked questions. Information sharing is our love language. Ask us questions and let us let us help you. Don't be offended if our answer is not what you expected to hear or if it doesn't address your emotions. We're trying to help you in a practical way because that is our love language. So if they want to love their children, they need to love us because we are them in in the future. So, yeah, that's what I wish they would do. Pay attention to us and believe that what we have to say is important. Yeah. Um, And for me, it's similar I think sometimes neurotypicals see how we react out of trauma in spaces where we're being criticised and they see that trauma response from autistic people as being typical of how we engage with the world. And it's not. What I would love is, just like like Tara said, is to, for neurotypical people to come into our spaces and watch how we interact with each other when we're, when we're just being ourselves. I know that you've said this in the past, Tara, but just hang out in the comment section of Neuroclastic and see the hilarity of people discovering things and learning about themselves and sharing and yeah just get comfy with a completely different way of connecting I think um autistic people don't so much socialize as connect social socializing seems kind of frivolous and without purpose but connecting always has a purpose and that what are you saying about complementary functions there are things that are just very few of us are very good at like marketing selling ourselves is is not our thing so if you ever wanted to donate your your time or your skills as a complementary function to autistic people that would be a great act of allyship ask what you can do for autistic people rather than what we can perform for you by being shiny and savant in some area and there's so much that happens where you know autistic people get a platform because they can they have some particular gift that they can perform something that's entertaining and some people really can but they still deserve space just for being a human not for what they can how much entertainment value they can provide and you know lots of us don't have some special gift that we can perform much better than anyone else and you know we're just humans who stuff that we're strengths and, and, and challenges so that and also autistic people do a lot of educating all the time a lot and it's labor and it comes at the cost of our energy which is limited 
because we're already spending a lot of energy, emotional and physical energy, just negotiating a world that isn't set up for us. So if you invite an autistic person to um, come and do some some labor for you, ask what you can do in return, how you can repay that. Maybe it's a financial thing or maybe you've got something that you can give back. So give back where you can. Yeah, we love bartering. Yeah. <laughs> because that's that interdependence thing. You know, here's my thing and here's your thing. Um, when we when we talked about a job board, everybody said, hey, we want to trade our skills. That's what the autistic people wanted more than anything. You know, if I'm a podcaster and I need a graphic designer, can I set someone up with podcasting and teach them how to grow their audience or how to navigate the tech and they can do some illustrations for my branding. So non-autistic people could help us that way too. We had a non-autistic person recently say, I'm a photographer. Is there a way that you can use my skills? And that was amazing. Yes. Uh, Here are things that we never have stock images of because, you know, nobody cares about us (laughs) to, Take pictures of us. And, you know, if you type autism into stock image search, you see a bunch of screaming kids that are faking a meltdown or you see them in ABA therapy. And that is not (laughs) what we need or want. And so, um, yeah, I, I think that that's a very autistic way of being an ally. And a lot of people compliment us on our ability or say you're so articulate that's kind of an insult to us um they don't mean it that way but that's just more of a neurotypical type of compliment we need to hear compliments that are like this was meaningful for me this helps me to understand my partner better or my son better or my you know, whatever, my clients better. I will use this information that you gave in my practice. Autistic people are are chronically underemployed, so a lot of them have tip jars, pay them. That would be great. Donate to them. Donate to autistic-led orgs. Neuroclastic really needs. Uh, We don't know how to market. (laughs) We don't try. We have no advertisements because we generally hate capitalism. So we we rely on donations. When you do your birthday fundraisers on Facebook, do Neuroclassic and tell other people why it's important to platform autistic people. So, yeah. And one more thing. Um, <laughs> one more thing. When you go on trainings to understand autism better, uh, seek out training that it's, is delivered by autistic people. It'll be a better quality information annual um, because we know. We know ourselves. Um, mm-hmm. You run the risk of being educated by somebody who is misinformed. If you, it's, a, it's a bad investment. Um, but also you put money into the pockets of autistic people. Um, help us out. So all good. All right. Well, thank you both so much for just your honesty. I think this is going to be such a good episode for our neurotypical audience to really put themselves in your shoes and take that perspective and hopefully build that bridge so that the double empathy is no longer a problem. Thank you so much for having us.
And for the very thoughtful questions. This yeah. is great. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. Although the theory of the double empathy problem is fairly new, there is a growing body of research to support it. For decades, autistic people have been thought of as lacking in social skills. Advocates of the neurodiversity movement are suggesting that autistic people merely have a different way of communicating, rather than a deficient one. By continuing to understand the autistic lived experience, non-autistic people can learn to take their perspective and avoid assumptions about how someone may be perceiving a specific situation. Are you a self-advocate willing to share your story and educate others? Are you a professional seeking to hear directly from autistic voices and improve your practice? Are you a family member hoping to support and empower your loved one? Whatever your role related to autism is, you can join our global autism community to connect and collaborate with people all over the world. Sign up today at community.globalautismproject.org. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at autismknowsnoborders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please kindly rate the show and leave a review. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.